In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mother of us all, amen. A few years ago in January, I had the great privilege of spending a week in London. And every time my husband, Hans, and I are in a new place, we make an effort to go to different churches that are in that area. And London did not disappoint. As you probably have heard, London is home to more than a few beautiful and historic churches. And so Hans and I were excited to do our rounds. We ended up at St. Paul's Cathedral, a massive cathedral with a huge dome and a number of different side chapels that was built in the 1600s. And we showed up there on the day that is the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul in the Anglican Church. So that night, we heard the story that we heard this morning. It was a cold, kind of disgusting Wednesday night, not unlike <laughs> the weather outside, even though it is April. <laughs> it, was, it was a gross night that night when we shuffled behind crowds into this massive worship space, ready to hear the story that we heard this morning together. And as is always the case when any of us hear scripture, there were other things happening in my life at that point. There are other things happening in your lives this morning. That night, I was in a really bad mental place and had been pretty much that whole winter. And something had happened where I was convinced that I was never going to be a good enough pastor. I was never going to be a good enough student, a good enough spouse, a good enough friend. Something sinister about that winter had lingered with me as I sat in that cathedral and feelings of unworthiness and incompetence had me all tied up. I was wrapped in anxiety and exhaustion, and I was caught in the chains of my own lack of self-worth. It was in that mental state that I sat in that big, beautiful cathedral, lit by candles as it snowed outside, and heard the story of Paul's conversion. As I sat there, I stared at this massive icon that was in front of everyone. So it was, if you can see, like this big, at least. It was huge. And it was a big picture of St. Paul holding St. Paul's cathedral in the palm of his hand. So this massive worship space looked tiny in the palm of his hand, and it was a little bit silly looking. But as I stared at Paul holding this church that we were sitting inside of, I had this moment of realization, and that is that my experience of the desperate need for God's grace, and indeed all of our experiences of the desperate need for God's grace, this whole church, that's couched in the experience of St. Paul. In Paul's experience of his need for God's grace in his life, our experience rests within this story. What happens to Paul today tells us something about each and every one of us' relationship with God. And here's the thing. I'm not the same as Paul, or Saul, as he's called in today's reading. We'll get to the weird name thing later. And you're not the same as Saul either, because Saul of Tarsus, in all of his obsession with being the perfect kind of persecutor, and in all his excitement about terrorizing other people, is the worst. He is the worst. 
He relishes in running around the ancient world, pulling Christians out of their homes and terrorizing them in response to their worship of Jesus Christ. And he's thorough, too. He is so concerned about doing a good job of persecuting that at the beginning of today's reading, we hear that Paul, Saul, wrote to the high priest asking for a list of names so that he could be better at terrorizing people. He asked for a to-do list. He is a super type A persecutor, which makes him the worst. And then suddenly, we get this story. Saul is with two friends on the road to Damascus when in a dramatic moment of light and noise, he's blinded and he falls off of his horse. He hears the voice of Jesus himself, who asks him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he's told to go into the city and wait for further instructions. He's completely helpless and is forced to be led by his partners to a house where he will wait for someone to come and help him. And wait he does for three long days without sight and helpless. Meanwhile, God shows up to a guy named Ananias, a Christian who lives in the area and who has definitely heard about this Saul guy. Because Ananias is a faithful Christian, and Saul has been persecuting his friends. So God shows up and has the audacity to ask Ananias to go announce God's grace and healing power to Saul. Saul, who we just established is the worst. And so naturally, Ananias is a little bit freaked out and confused and angry and afraid because this is the guy who's excited about killing people like him. What is God thinking? How can God, one, possibly be interested in a relationship with this person who is so undeserving, and two, expect Ananias to risk his life for someone who's so undeserving? That's ridiculous, and it's an unfair request. But thank God, the Holy Spirit is a powerful force, and her imagination and dream for us is bigger than anything we could ever imagine. And so the impossible becomes possible, and Ananias somehow finds the strength and wherewithal to march himself down to a house on a street called Straight, where he prays over this man who has relished in killing his friends. While Saul is still helpless, and before he has even been baptized, Ananias announces to Saul, that God's grace is for him, too. That God wants a relationship, that God cares, that God has claimed him. Brother Saul, he says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's only after that announcement of love and grace that Saul's sight is regained, that he gets baptized, and that he finds strength. Friends, this is a story about the power of grace in Saul's life. And like I said earlier, I think that our experience is held within Saul's experience. Just like on that icon of Paul holding the church named after him, our encounter and need for a gracious God rests within Saul's experience. Friends, I don't know everything about your lives, you're probably very okay with that. <laughs> but we're all a little bit like Saul. A little bit. 
I mean, we're not totally like Saul, right? We don't terrorize other Christians, hopefully. We don't have lists of names for who to ruin the reputation of. We don't want to destroy the lives of other people. We're not, we're not totally Saul, right? But we're a little bit Saul. We're all a little bit. Because even when we aren't the ones pulling people out of their houses and actively terrorizing them, we participate actively in systems that harm other people every single day. That's part of what it means to be human. But beyond that even, even beyond our aware or unaware participation in systems that harm, we're like Saul in another way. We are wrapped up and trapped in brokenness, and we rarely even notice. When I sat in that cathedral on a day much like today, I was not aware of the fact that my inability to recognize the image of God within myself was a a symptom of brokenness. Friends, I didn't realize that I was being suffocated by the narrative I was telling myself. And Saul didn't realize that the kind of life he was living, one marked by persecuting and terrorizing others, was limiting him, was keeping him from experiencing the possibility for relationship and new life. What is it that binds you up today? What is it, what narrative is it, what thing is it that has you trapped in the system of brokenness? What narrative is it that keeps you from encountering new life? Because there is one, I promise. What is it? We are all participants in systems that harm and that persecute others. We are all trapped in brokenness and wrapped up in narratives that harm us as we cling to them. We are all that guy who shouldn't deserve God's grace, but somehow gets it anyway. But friends, we're also Ananias. We're also the ones who hear God's call and laugh at it, who hear the promises that we make in baptism that we're going to remember just a little while from now and think that's too much, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. Or who look at someone else and say, well, I'm way better than that guy. I'm way better than Saul. Who look at someone else and say, how can it be possible for God to work through somebody like that? That kind of person doesn't deserve God's grace. That kind of person will never be good enough to serve God. There's no way I want anything to do with that kind of person because what would it mean for me? I'm not risking my safety or my reputation or goodness to spend time with that kind of person to live in relationship with that kind of person, to believe that God could work through that kind of person. Ananias, as he clings to his own assumptions about what God is capable of and isn't capable of, he's just as trapped as Saul was in this story. He's trapped in this narrative about others, and it has severely limited his ability to trust God's imagination and the promise of grace. Friends, sometimes we're Saul. Sometimes we're Ananias. Usually we're both. But guess what? God's grace is big enough to disrupt your life 
to disrupt the ties that bind you, even when you don't realize that you're in captivity to brokenness. While you are still helpless, God's grace is for you. It's here to make the scales fall off your eyes, to give you new life. God's grace is big enough to disrupt your expectations, your stereotypes, your fears, your assumptions about what God could be capable of. It's here to empower you to respond to the call to proclaim new life, to make you capable of letting go of all that holds you back. When Ananias meets Saul, he gives him a new name, but it's not Paul. That name comes way later. As you just heard Pastor Jay tell the kiddos, the new name that Ananias gives Saul is brother. A name that while Ananias says it, comes to describe both of them. As they stand in that room together, Grace knits together two people who shouldn't even be friends. And more than that, it makes them brothers. It makes them family. And Grace does that for us too. Even when we don't expect it or deserve it, God shows up anyway. Grace fills our lungs that we might no longer breathe threats or violence like Saul, but breathe the promise of new life in Christ. Grace fills our hearts that we might no longer turn toward our neighbor in judgment and spite like Ananias, but in joy and reverence for the image of God that is reflected in the other. Grace knits us together and calls us siblings, makes us family Grace sets us free from the chains of brokenness that bind us and instead binds us to one another in the new promise of resurrected life. The power of God's grace loves us into wholeness and gifts us to one another. May we give thanks and praise for the astounding ways that God's grace grants us new life And may we find the strength and courage to shout hallelujah in response. Amen.